Welcome to the War Room. Today we have an interesting guest, Rick Prado, but first let's pay them bills. Bluehost is where you should host your website, and I'm going to hook you up with free publicity on this podcast. All you have to do is go to ryanraysenior.com slash hosting, ryanraysenior.com slash hosting to get your free publicity and your domain. Okay, our guest today is Rick Prado. His book is Black Ops. The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Great interview, compelling story. Check out the book and let me know what you think of the interview where in the newsletter. Let's get to Rick. Rick, it is great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Doing great, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. Okay. Well, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a new book out. Um, I always like to ask this question, why now? Why this book right now? You know, uh, after I retired, I had time for introspection. And one of the things that had always bothered me, but I had never really consciously digested was how badly my agency is represented in the media, especially Hollywood. And more importantly, Ryan, how my colleagues are portrayed in Hollywood. You know, the agencies is vilified and we're a bunch of backstabbing, drug selling, trading, um, being hunted by our own government, Jason Bourne kind of crap. And nothing could be further from the truth. But, you know, we have, we're a small agency, um, but smaller than the FBI and our operational components, even smaller. Yeah, we have 139 stars on our wall of honor at CIA headquarters. And a third of those are post 9-11. And many of those men and women I personally knew. So I honestly felt that I had a debt of respect to them that they didn't find out about what grandpa did during the war from Jason Bourne or Hollywood, that they will at least have this source there. So that that's the main driving point. The second part of it is because of the life that I lived, that I fought communism in five different incarnations. Um, That's another thing that worries me is that tendency towards that socialism, communism kind of trend that's going around worldwide. So that was the impetus. Okay, you, you you touched on several things. I wanted to get into the interview, so we'll we'll go back to the beginning of your life. Uh, talk about communism, socialism. You, you tell a, a story that you know as Castro's men are moving into your town, you watch as this dude unloads a clip right there on your front porch, and there's this you know shells going everywhere. And I was sitting there reading that, going, "My goodness, um, how quickly life can change." A, B. That's, that that changed your whole career life trajectory because you you know if that doesn't happen you're probably still in Cuba today living whatever Cuba would have become right um, um, and so and then you go from that to basically being a a short time uh, lack of a better term an orphan more in orphanage at least um, and so how, how do you reflect on those moments now versus how what was it like going through them because you know time tends to change our perspective of things. Excellent question, and, and, and one that I've had to, the, uh, the luxury to think about. Um, addressing the first part of it, um, you know, you, you see things like that when you're eight, barely eight years old, seven or eight years old, when literally I was by the window, my parents had gone out to dinner, and I was with a 15-year-old nanny, and uh, there was a firefight going on. I could hear the shots, so I went to the window, typical seven-year-old. So I went up to the window, I'm looking out, and below the parapet, I, what I didn't see was there was a gorilla with an automatic weapon. And all of a sudden he pops up and lets off a whole magazine full of this stuff. 
And, you know, there were bodies on the floor. I mean, uh, it, it was it, it was it was a good attack on, on the town. It was a raid. They went back out. Uh, subsequently, they came back. Um, then the orphanage, as you mentioned, uh, you know, that was my father's um, the biggest imprint from my father. The fact that he was willing to put his only child on an airplane to go to a country that he has never been and maybe not even be able to make it out for freedom because we were middle class. We had no reason to uh, immigrate anywhere other than the, the communism. Fast forward to present when I can look back, uh, especially writing the book, what it crystallizes for me is what I've always believed is that God gives us a path. Uh, and if we're willing to pay the price of admission, you follow that path, but God prepares you for that path. And I honestly believe, like you alluded to earlier, early on, um, he started for, forging my medal fairly early on to uh, value these things, respect these things, and see the impact of these things and, and act accordingly. Talking to your parents and relatives um, later on in life, what would they say happened to Cuba from their perspective? I'm not talking about like the failed uh, American attempts to retake it uh, and, and to push Castro back, but how did it get to a point to where Castro was able to, um, you know, gather enough men and get the will of the people to uh, to flip the island? You know, it was a combination of things. Um, first of all, there was a big lie. Um, you know, um, Castro did not advertise his communist ties or philosophies until after the fact. Um, Batista was a corrupt government. Then again, in the 1950s and 60s, all of Latin America and the United States, we've had corruption issues. Um, so yeah, he was corrupt. Uh, there were some abuses, but you know, at the time, before Castro took over, Cuba, the currency in Cuba was the equivalent to the US dollar. And Cuba was one of the most advanced countries in Latin America, probably the top three. So, you know, it's, it's the other man's grass is always greater. Yes, Batista was bad. Castro sold, sold a good game. Batista was corrupt and he was not a fighter. You know, when he saw oh, this is not looking good, he left. And as soon as he left, everybody else quit. So I, I think it was a combination of wanting more uh, honestly and, and, and better, which that's what we should always strive for. Um, but they, they were sold a bag of goods. And, and I would give my grandfather, who you read in the book, was my one of my first heroes. I remember my grandfather clearly telling me my mom early on, says, this man will be the, the, the ruin of this country. And my mom going like, how can you say that? You know, boy, did that change? Yeah, it, it's interesting because um, I've mentioned this on the show before, but You'll read a poll in the U.S. and it says, you know, what percentage of Americans trust politicians? And it's really low, 10, 20 percent. And I always joke that the people answering that poll always think about the other guy or girl when they answer that. They're not thinking about their own. And what you do see in emerging markets is exactly what you described, is you have someone in power who is corrupt. Um, and for whatever reason, it's hard for humans to say no we might think you're our candidate, but you're corrupt. We have to remove you because if we don't, what happens is far worse. And so we kind of have this very short-term thinking to root out corruption, uh, whether that's in the right and the left in the U.S. We we tend to, they're our guy or our gal, and so we're going to kind of ride that horse, even though we see the flaws, um, and it compounds. And then eventually one day you you have something um, far worse than if you would have nipped it in the bud years ago. 
I, I totally agree. And, and, you know, it's, it's um, professionally, you know, uh, we, we make better decisions than we do personally, because personally it becomes an emotional issue. So if you're emotionally right or left or centrist, uh, you, you're already going to be looking through a different optic. And, um, you know, I, I'm just hoping that people focus on middle America, the majority, we are a republic, and it should be a majority rule. And we need the silent majority to stop being silent and, and bring some normalcy. And, and again, I'm not pitching far right, and I'm not pitching far left. Uh, I'm pitching sanity uh, and, and, and taking good care of this country without the drama. Okay, so you come to US, uh, you usually go to Florida, and you end up in Denver, you're by yourself. Um, I mean, I have four kids. My oldest is uh, 14. My youngest is three. So I've got one that's six and 12 right in there. So I've, I've had eight, nine, 10 year old kids. <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, I've lost them in the mall for 30 seconds and seen the trauma that does to them. Um, what was it like for you, you know, going from, you know, hot Miami, Florida to, as you mentioned, never seen snow before in your life only a few speak the language you speak. What, was it traumatic? Was it scared? Or by, but that, by that point, were you kind of like, okay, I've got to do this? Um, you know, how, what was that like? You know, going back to my dad, who's definitely my first hero, um, well, my main hero anyway, um, he, um, I was the little man. He always brought me up to, hey, this is what you do. This is how you behave yourself. This is how, what you do. You open the door for your mom. You know, just the basic. Uh, so he had me fairly brainwashed into that being a little older than I really was. Uh, I will never forget, because it's tattooed in my brain the day that I walked into that airport to leave. And my dad, um, who lived with us the last five years of his life here, told me, used to tell me, he says, you know, uh, you, you told me that if mom didn't stop crying, you would not, you, you would not leave. I don't remember that, but you know, he did. And you, you go through this glass door and they have to stay behind and I'm, I'm dressed up in my little suit and tie. And I look back and I see my mom bawling her eyes out of my dad, literally biting his lip not to. And you know, right, that's the last thing I remember until I landed in Miami. I do not recall walking to the airplane where I sat. This is the first time on an airplane. You figure I, don't re I have no recall of any of that, not even landing in Miami. I remember when we came through the gates and there was the priest there. That's, that's where my memory kicks back in. So I was in shock internally, uh, externally, you know, I didn't blink. So um, the orphanage was, was uh, I mean, I was only in, in South Florida for about two weeks when they transferred me to Pueblo, Colorado, the Sacred Heart Orphanage there. And very strict place, uh, very Catholic, um, mass every day. But you know, you're dealing with, three or four cultures, races, uh, and all, all of them pissed off orphans. You know, they, nobody is happy being an orphan. Uh, so there, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of fighting. So you grow up quick. Um, and, and that, I think that that was another part of the forging for me, learning to stand up for myself early on and, and uh, not starting fights, but not backing down either. Uh, and then the second big thing that came from it, they, they really focused on teaching us English. And I, for the eight months I was there, it was everyday C-spot run books. And that's how I learned. By the time I went, went to Miami eight months later, I could help my parents. And you've touched on this some, but you, and you think that this kind of 
um, tumultuous time almost prepared you for this career that you're about to span because um, just hearing some of the things you're saying, you're saying, well, I kind of have this hardened exterior, but interior I'm, I'm in shock. And here I'm in a room with different people. I don't know, speaking different languages, um, you know, going to work for the CIA, I'm assuming those things, they're not formal training, but they didn't hurt. No, on the contrary, I think that they were essential. Um, I honestly believe that, um, I mean, everybody has a story in their lives, but that's, let's face it, life is life. Um, when, but when you have the contrast, you know, if you were born in this country and you're a patriot and you serve and everything else, um, that's, that's, that's huge. But for guys like me who saw something different, go something good like the United States, go bad like it did in Cuba, and then coming to the United States and seeing, the, you know, what life is here. Um, that is, that is, that makes serving a lot easier because we honestly know that there's a difference between what we have. And, you know, bully pulpit, you know, what I think one of the problems that we have in this country is we don't know how good we have it. Most Americans have no idea what the third world is like. Yeah, you talk about being in um, Central America, and I've been to Nicaragua and Honduras, um, and I was down there, um, I think, all the times I've been to those countries. I've only been to Nicaragua once, but Honduras, I think, all the times I've been down there on a um, with Compassion International, which worked with, you know, a very yep. disenfranchised children in the World Health Organization, some of the most poorest areas that they have, and you go down there, and it's it's absolutely just devastating. Because you you walk in, and you, you know, as, as someone who likes to fix things and get things done, you walk in and you just see for miles just these little huts and there's trash everywhere and there's no water. And, and you realize just how large the problem is, how long it's going to take to solve and how little you can do it. And then you come back here and you're like, oh, yeah, we got it really good. So I, I think you're you're right. And um, I don't want to get too far off track, but I do, I do, I do think that it's, it's, it's an interesting mentality when you've traveled around the world. Um, whatever your debate on the, uh, on the immigration issue is, when you go to those places, you at least become aware of why people would, you know, you wouldn't want to stay in somewhere like that. Whatever you think of open or closed borders, you at least become aware, like, wow, I can see why these people are trying to migrate because good night, it's heaven here. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, it, it's, it's something palpable. I, I remember being in Latin America and working out of an embassies and you, you drop, walk out and there was a line that went a whole city block of people trying to, you know, get, get visas to come to work in the United States or to live in the United States. And I, and I think that, you know, yes, everybody talks about the, uh, the immigration problem, uh, but most of it is focused on the border, but very little is being focused on how do we make a better system to yeah. allow people to come into this country legally without having to wait five, six years, um, you sure. know, Absolutely. Okay, so you, you mentioned loosely, uh, I think earlier, the, the Contras, um, you were down in that, that, that time period. And you also mentioned that um, part of the book is to kind of dispel myths. So dispel some myths from your perspective, what someone like me or the general public might think around uh, what was going on down there at that time. You know, it's, um, it's, it's funny, because the, the, the media was always playing the, uh, the, uh, the Contra revolutionaries, the, the freedom fighters, who were trying to dethrone the Sandinista communist regime propped by Cuba, uh, they always slung a lot of mud at, at, uh, at the, uh, the Contras. And I'm not saying that they're squeaky clean. Come on, look, we had guys bringing dope back from Vietnam. We have had guys bringing back weapons and gold from you know, Iraq. It, you know, we're, we're humans and it does happen. 
but that was a minority. That was the exception. And what made that, that uh, I, I was there for a little over three years, literally living in a jungle hammock Monday through Friday. That, that was my bed for a little over three years, Monday through Friday. And the first 14 months of that program, I was the only agency officer allowed in the camps. Imagine yourself having witnessed what you saw as a kid and couldn't do anything about it. I saw my first country um, taken over by communism, my family destroyed, and all I could do was leave. And now at the age of 30, uh, I already been to pararescue, I already had all the paramilitary training. And now I am literally leading these guys and training these guys and working with these guys and gals to, uh, to fight the same monster that destroyed my country. And the real crux here is when I was in the camps, I would teach all day, but in the evenings, I would make the rounds from fire, fire pot to fire pot, talking to some of the, the, the different contra little groups. And I always ask them, why are you here? And each single one of them had a personal story. It wasn't I read Marx and Lenin. No, no, no. It was, you know, they, they, they beat up my priest and burnt my church. They raped my daughter. They uh, forced conscripted my, my son, my 15-year-old son. You know, it, it was all, we want to go back to freedom, even though they themselves had heat. They had a much worse dictator than, than Batista, because the face Samosa was about as bad as they get them, as they make them. Uh, especially when it comes to the corruption in, in the money uh, graft. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a very pure uh, reinforcement. I never, I never woke up saying, oh man, I wish I wasn't here. It, to me, it was electrifying to, to be able to be with these kind of people day in and day out. So you, you have the resolve to do it. Um, how do you deal with the frustrations though of going through something like that? Because it's gotta be a lot of ups and downs over making progress, losing ground, um, you know, you're, you're probably used to coming from a lot better trained military organization. You mentioned being a paratrooper, so trying to get them up to snuff. And then there, there's probably a question of, you know, what is actually, you know, U.S. standards versus just the standards just to be uh, to defeat the enemy down here. So how do you walk through all those emotions? Well, I mean, I think that, um, like, like I said, when I went to Honduras, I had no agency training whatsoever. They literally recruited me because I had worked with them as a medic. And uh, they knew I was a pararescue man, and I had the hard skills, you know, to be able to train these folks. And um, but you you go there, you know, you're dealing with an open book, you're dealing with a clean slate, um, and anything that you could teach them, they they would really absorb. And and of course, you know, we, we, it will never compare to the quality of our tier one, tier two guys here, or or even our you know rangers or anything like that. Um, but these guys were fighting for a purpose. Um, which was home. It was freedom. It was their turf. Uh, the Mosquito Indians, which were on, on, the, on, the, on the East Coast, uh, were my, some of my favorite because these were men and women from the land. They, they could hunt. They could track. They could survive in jungles where regular people could not. So they made formidable gorillas. So yeah, they, they lack the, uh, you know, the, the, the toys and the, uh, the, the techniques and, you know, the entries and all this other stuff that we do. But when it came to guerrilla fighting, they were very adept at it and they had the right motivation. And, and so you, you have something like that. And then you touched on, you know, 9-11 and then kind of the, the post 9-11 world, which is on some level, 
it is a 180, but on, on another level, where those battles are fought, it's probably quite similar as far as technology and skill and some of the same problems. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, you know, we, we uh, a lot of people make the uh, highlight the fact that we went from the Cold War to terrorism. Well, yes and no. We did not shut down our communist programs, anti-communist programs. You know, we still chase the Russians, the Chinese, the Cubans, the Nicaraguans, the Venezuelans, whatever it was. Uh, and, and of course, terrorism also. Um, what, what changed was the priorities. Um, you know, like, like you, you run a business, I, I, you know, I, I've worked for the government for a particular age entity. We have limited resources. You know, no matter how much resources you have, those are your resources. And when you're told that you have to do, you know, first is terrorism, second is this, that, that's how you, how you allocate your, your resources. So yeah, communism uh, was always something that we tracked and, and, and try to fight against and try to buttress against. But terrorism definitely was the flashbang that made people look this way. And there's an urgency to, to counter terrorism than there is, that, that, is, that doesn't exist in communism. You know, communism, it takes a while for something to take hold and you have time, like a cancer to treat it. Um, terrorism is like getting shot. You know, you, you gotta do something about it, diddy mal uh, at the moment. So um, it's, it's a very complicated balance. I think we're, we're reaching a, a pretty decent balance now. Uh, in, in the last eight years or so, we, we, you know, there, there started a, a trend from the military to get away from uh, fighting wars uh, to uh, preventing wars. And I think the Ukraine is one of those examples where we had people in there, we, USG, not just uh, my agency, had people in there uh, very early on, um, 2016, I think it was, um, and started training individuals about how to prepare in case of. And I think that that's a wise investment because that way we can support, we can train, but we don't have to send our guys and gals in harm's way like we did for the last 21 years. Uh, being a member of the CIA, how do you or do you ever evaluate, is this the right side? Is this the right action? Um, we're doing the right thing here. You know, it's not black and white. Now, the Ukrainians, uh, as much as I want them to, uh, to defeat the, the Russians, now that's very personal to me. Uh, they were a pretty corrupt government. Uh, they, had, they had their own problems. And, but people got to realize that that's where they came from. They were a communist you know, uh, 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 state, part of the, so the Soviet Union. So I, I think you, you try to look for the greater good. Um, I had a discussion a couple of weeks ago with somebody that they were talking about how bad the Ukrainians were. And I said, yeah, but you see, you're only focusing on the Ukrainians. Me, I'm focusing on the fact that Ukraine can become the Afghanistan of the Soviet Union. What toppled the Soviet Union was Russian body bags going back for years. Uh, and we were helping the Mujahideen to fight them. And that's part, that was a big part of their collapse. Of course, there was other, other things uh, being worked on. Uh, so uh, that's what I hope, that this is, uh, all the indications are there that this Ukraine conflict is taking so much credibility away from the Russians, is taking so many resources away from the Russians, and definitely uh, has shown a pretty ugly side. There's very few people that can say, yeah, they have a right 
to going into in, into a sovereign country and taking it over by force the way they're doing. Okay, so you, you kind of sparked something there when you said that. Going back from the end of the Cold War, um, you know, Russia, obviously before the Cold War was over, but Russia and Afghanistan, you kind of see that debacle. Um, then, then you have the, the wall that comes down. Um, and then we have this kind of period where in the 90s, things are happening, but not the same way. Um, and we have this guy, bin Laden, who was on the radar. Um, and so I, I'm curious, two things on your perspective on this. One, um, it seemed, so I was a junior in high school when 9-11 happened. So for perspective, um, I remember hearing, hey, you know, the bin Laden, they hate the West, this, that, and the other. And since then, I've read some of his writings uh, in the 90s, kind of seeing some of the stuff he said how do we take those lessons as well? And first, what are your opinions on Bin Laden's motivations? Was it kind of what he wrote in the letters? Is it a mix? Is he, you know, what, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? And then um, B, how do we take those lessons? Because it seems quite clear that we had a chance to take out someone like Bin Laden. We passed on it. And now we're, we're dealing with this stuff moving forward. Yeah, uh, that, that was a, that was an eye-opening experience. I, I opened up the Bin Laden task force. I was the senior ops officer in the, uh, um, Osama bin Laden uh, task force. You know, we opened it in uh, nine, early January of 96, I believe it was. And we already knew that all the indications was that this guy was fomenting, supporting, training terrorists. Within eight months of opening that, that task force, our, our files on him grew tenfold, if not more, because now we had a station with some very bright and analytical geniuses in there going after every bit of every crumb of information and everything we were getting from unilateral sources, from our liaison counterparts, uh, from SIGINT was the fact that he was extorting money from the Saudis in with his own money also using that to build camps, train these radical, you know, um, individuals. Um, he took that big turn uh, when he declared war on the United States. I mean, let's face it. But before that, we had all the writings on the wall. We knew what he was doing in, in Khartoum. We knew the, the camps that he had in, in different places, including Sudan. Uh, we had overhead of the, the training, you know, satellite overhead of the training of these guys. It was all textbook, uh, you know, terrorism kind of tactics. And um, the proposal was made several times at, at the time. Uh, a very, very dear friend of mine, a Green Beret legend, Billy Waugh, was our chief of counter-surveillance, surveillance and counter-surveillance in, in Khartoum. Kofor Black, who ended up being my boss later on uh, during 9-11, was the chief of station. And Billy, uh, like I said, who I know extremely well, he's told me the stories. This is Rick. He says, I could have killed him with a pencil. You know, I got close to him. I, I, he drove around his car all by himself. I, his security detail was a joke. They were, they were fighters, but there's a difference between being a guerrilla fighter and being a PSD kind of guy, you know? And um, the proposals were made, you know, let's neutralize this guy. You know, we can, you know, well, you can't shoot him. Okay, well, we can kidnap him. Billy was very uh, vociferous about the fact that you take a, an ODA in there, a good 12-man team, and chances are you, you're going to get out of there without anybody getting hurt. Uh, at least from our side, and, and extricating him out of there. Uh, 
action was never, never, never taken. Uh, those things were always, well, we don't know enough what he's about going about. The writing was on the wall. It just wasn't politically palatable at the time. And like you said, uh, the, the early 1990s was the, the down of communist threat. China was emerging, but the Chinese have a very different uh, approach than, than the Russians. Um, and, and terrorism was localized. It was Latin American terrorism, you know, Southeast Asia terrorism, Middle East terrorism. We were not involved so much and definitely directly attacked, um, at least by the Bin Laden side of the house. You know, you got to remember that Hezbollah had killed more Americans than any other uh, uh, terrorist organization until 9-11, because their, their em uh, embassy uh, and, and barracks bombing in, in Beirut were, were atrocious. So I, I think that that was, that was part, of, part of the trend. You know, the, that, that change was, was coming and, and we needed to juggle both things. The, the, the lessons learned from Bin Laden were the same lessons that we, a lot of people spoke about in World War II. Can you imagine if somebody would have shot Hitler in 1937? Right, changes everything. So, you know, you can argue that the coal, the attack on the coal, mm -hmm. are two embassies in Africa that got blown to smithereens that thousands of people, you know, um, and, and even 9-11 might have been prevented or at least lessened the, the probability of it. So. What was your highest and lowest moment in the CIA? I had a lot of high moments. Um, and and when, when you work in, in that kind of organization, you have to really be able to focus on the positive stuff in the mission and, and forget and avoid the, uh, you know, the negative stuff that exists in any organization. You know, we have our fair share of alpha hotels, just like the military does, just like the FBI does, just like the corporate world does. You're always going to have a man or a woman there that's above you who is there for the politics and not for, especially in our, in our work, you know, we, we look up to those individuals that have the same values and the same goals, kick ass and, you know, and, and, and beat the enemy, not, will I get reelected again. Um, so that, that, that kind of uh, highs where a lot of the operations, Puerto Cabezas for me was a huge uh, success. Um, the, the Corinto rescue for me was huge not because we were successful, because we were not, but the fact that I was able to get my guys out of harm's way, um, recruiting a terrorist in Latin America, um, you know, growing to be 71 and still around, all these things uh, are things that were all highlights. Lowlights, um, I, I think that the, the biggest low light for me, which actually led to my actual retirement, was at the end of my career when I came up with, with a program that everybody, including the vice president of the United States and Condoleezza Rice thought it was a great program to have. And uh, we executed well, we, we did all the surveillance stuff extremely well. We were never compromised, but when pushing came to shove, we were never allowed to, uh, to operate, you know, and, and actually do damage to the bad guys. And um, that really stuck in my craw because, you know, they had given me pick of the litter. The guys and gals that I had in my team were the best of the best in the agency. Uh, four of them went on to be SIS fours and fives, and they were GS 12s and 13s when they were with me. So uh, th these were people that deserved a career. And if we were not gonna use them 
for the purpose that we were training, you know, you can't have guys and gals like this repelling upside down, throwing flashbangs just for, you know, the sake of saying we brief well. Um, so when, when we presented um, two back-to-back programs, they, they allowed me to, to talk about one in fairly good detail. Uh, when I briefed 10 in, in, in PAVIT, our DDO, um, when the, our director of operations admits, this said, and he said to the director of the CIA, George Tennant at the time, he said, Mr. Director, I have, we have no doubt that Prado and his team can not only do this, but they can get away with it. Pause. I'm doing happy dance. And then he says, however, we have to look at the political ramifications of doing this now. When I heard that for the second time, uh, the writing was on the wall. And, and that was a dark moment for me because it, it precipitated a, a decision that I had not contemplated, which was my time is done. You know, I'm a SIS2 guy. I got, a little, I got pretty good traction. I have a great reputation. If I put a program like this and I cannot get traction out of it, I want to leave on a high. I didn't want to leave going back as being a deputy division chief or a division chief somewhere and pushing paper. So it was, it was a tough one. Uh, I think I handled it well. Um, I went home and I literally went through my career and I, I literally divided those bad moments. I, I threw them away and I just focused on the men and women that I work with, our missions, the successes, and the foreign nationals that we work with that get lockstep with us to, to do greater good. Walk me through your day on September 11th. Yeah, well, we all know where we were on 9-11. Uh, I was chief of operations for the counter-terrorist center. Sexiest job I ever had. I love that job. And a, and a great title to match. It was good going to the FBI and say, well, yes, I'm the chief of ops for CTC. It was pretty sexy. But um, I was at the front office waiting for Kofor to get off the phone. I needed to talk to him about something. And they had the big TV there. I was talking to the secretaries when I see the plane, the first plane hit. And, you know, it, it's a blur. You just see a plane. We said, oh, geez, you know, it must have been twin engine Cessna or something that hit this. You know, we don't know. And one thing that the, 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 the our, our counter-terrorist center, which was created by one of my mentors, um, Dewey Claridge, was that from the very beginning, they, they, the center incorporated representatives from every federal agency. We had Secret Service guys that would do a year or two with us, senior FBI up front and in some of the branches. We had DEA guys, DS, military representation. It was everybody in the community had one or two people there at the center. And one thing that I didn't even know, we had an FAA guy. And he came up to me after the first plane. He goes, Mr. Prado, we have a problem. And I go, what's up? He goes, we have four planes who have activated their transponders to center and, and none of them are responding. 15 seconds later, here comes the second airplane and, and it hits. So then there was no doubt in our minds with what we had. And um, my, my, my first course of action, the chief of staff for, for COFR was standing next to me and I said, I need you to send out a cable to every station that we have in the world. Number one, watch your six. This is not an isolated attack. Number two, Tap every source, government and unilateral that you have. We need to get to the bottom of this. And short cable, but that's, that's what went out. And then it was just everybody trying to gather, you know, talking with NSA, what have you heard, blum, blum, blum. 
And um, Hezbollah, my Hezbollah branch was, uh, you know, convinced that there was a good possibility that this had been Hezbollah because, again, to date, uh, they had done the grandiose stuff, not Bin Laden, uh, at least directly to Americans. They had done it to, like I said, the embassies in, in the coal, but not in, definitely not in our soil. So, um, you know, pretty, pretty quickly after that, we, we, we had confirmation. We had all the, uh, that's what we suspected. And, but you know, Ryan, the, the sad thing is, is that we don't learn from our lessons, okay? I try to. And the reason I came up with these programs at the end, post 9-11, I'm literally about, about 11 months after 9-11 is when I started this program, was that the amount of chatter and bits and pieces of intelligence that we had before 9-11, we knew there was something major going on. We knew it. And we, we were even saying this could most likely be in the United States or against a, a large US entity overseas. But we had no, you know, intelligence is not a photograph that you take. It's a puzzle with half the pieces and, and you put what you find and, and you make an analysis about what is this going to look like or where, where it's going. And the concept of, that, of that, that program that I did at the end was give me three individuals from the support mechanisms of every major terrorist group in narco trafficking group. We go make book on them. We establish patterns of life. We know where they live, what cars they drive. Uh, we, we make copy keys for his car. Um, you know, we, we know uh, what boyfriends or girlfriends they have, what schools they go to, what mosques, whatever. And then you come up with three operational plans on how do you disrupt this, this organization if we're getting the kind of chatter that we had during 9-11. And, and I told this to, uh, to George Tennant when I briefed him on the program before I even briefed uh, Cheney. I, I said, sir, first of all, if I would have had these programs before 9-11, we might have been able to do something to disrupt Al-Qaeda. It's no guarantees, but we had a better shot than what we did, which we didn't. And, and I second thing, I said, you know, you can't build the firehouse when your house is already on fire. We got to have these things in place. So the concept was, let's say Hezbollah, there's a lot of chatter. We know Hezbollah is up to something. They're, they're really fomenting or Al-Qaeda, whatever. Now you execute. You go out after these three support mechanisms that are in different places, but they're all belong to the same organization. And within a span of two or three days, you know, one gets uh, you know, arrested because they found drugs in his car. The other one gets duct taped and, and taken out. And then the third one maybe gets shot. What is that organization going to do? They're going to hit the brakes because they, they, they think they're penetrated. How can they find three of my senior logistics guys all over the world? Uh, we have to be penetrated. And the reason I emphasize logistics is because that's the soft underbelly of any terrorist organization. You know, the, the heads of the organizations are highly protected and they're hydrants. You cut one head off, another one will pop back up. The shooters at the low end, they're a dime a dozen. You shoot one of them and four of his cousins join, join the fight. That's all you're getting. But that support mechanism is priceless to these organizations and visible to us because you have to have a, pers a, a public persona in order to be a, a support mechanism. You have to live in a city where you can get medical, you can get safe houses, you can get documentations, you can get all these kinds of things. 
so that was the concept. And, and I think that we just didn't learn from, from our lessons in 9-11 um, because this was not a multi-gazillion dollar program. This was peanuts compared to, you know, what, what we spent on other things. Okay, last two things, we'll get you out of here. I noticed in the book, you have redacted portions. Um, if, you want to re- if you want to reveal those redacted portions, we're open ears. But uh, a more serious question for you. I was having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day. Um, we, we had a guest on talking about the uh, Watergate and, and, and the CIA and, and, and all that involvement. And, and he was saying that, you know, for his perspective, that the, the Warren Commission, the fact that the government won't release stuff proves, at least in his mind, or gives strong suspicion that there's a cover-up. And I said, you know, the problem I have, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but the problem I have is that the government redacts so much information. <laughs> There's all kinds of crazy things redacted for no logical reason. So being on the inside, now on the outside, I'm not asking you to weigh in on the Warren Commission, but I am curious your thoughts about, you know, uh, even Jack Carr's novels as a former SEAL have redactions in it. To me, it's that spins up whatever whatever you think of conspiracy theories, that spins up conspiracy theories. So as someone on the inside, on the outside now, are these good things? Are they actually protecting Americans from any things? Or is this just bureaucratic stuff that's that's causing more harm than good? That's why, uh, generally speaking, not case by case, of course. Well, you know, the, that's that's an excellent question for me because um, it's, it's a pet peeve of all of us. You know, we, we have a disadvantage as, a, as an agency that when we have a success, we cannot flaunted for years. Uh, the FBI could have wrote Ruby Reach today and then tomorrow they kill Dillinger and everybody goes, oh, they killed Dillinger. So we don't, you know, we, we don't have that luxury um, because we have to protect our sources and our methods. Uh, and remember the CIA does two things, collects into all source intelligence through human, SIGINT, everything that's out there. And we do covert action. That's why the book is called Black Ops because we do things in the black. When the American hand cannot be shown, that's what CIA is supposed to do, those kind of, uh, th- those kind of operations. So there's things that are sensitive. There's things that I would not even contemplate writing about. There's things that I knew. I don't want them to be out, okay? So there's, there's, a, per- there's a percentage that I did not even broach. The 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 the, um, the big uh, uh, deductions out of out of my uh, out of the book were the that last program that I talked about um, the things that we were able to do in preparation for this uh, they allowed me to you know talk about briefing the vice president and Condoleezza and the concept of of the, of the program but not any of our actual activities uh, even though you know we had obfuscated. The location and the timing, they still, they, they black that out. Uh, the, the publisher um, recommended that we leave some of the redactions in there um, because they do have a, a sex appeal. Uh, if it, for, there's, there's people that have been able to figure out a lot because they know enough about something and they could go, oh, I think this is what's in here. Was that this country or whatever? Uh, but back to your point, yeah, there, there's, there's some silly things to get you know, blacked out there. Uh, I remember a couple of books that I've seen about the agency, including mine, where uh, they blacked out Browning High Power. Well, that goes back to the Vietnam days where CIA carried Browning High Power. So in Vietnam, if you saw somebody with a Browning, it was a CIA person. So I can understand it back in 1972, but to be blacking this out now in 2022 is kind of ridiculous, but uh, it is a necessary evil. Um, 
is that always managed as well as possible? My, my counterpoint to, to, that, to that argument is the same scrutiny that the agency puts on guys like me about, you know, my book is fully vetted by the agency. That's, you know, they, every word there was, it was, you know, to the letter to them. We have a responsibility as an agency to number one, those things that we can talk about, talk about them. Get, get it out there, what kind of individuals we have and the kind of sacrifices that they make and the successes that they have. Um, and, 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 and at the same time, understanding that, yeah, there are sources and methods uh, that you have to, but what about these charlatans that come out on television and you see them talking heads? I, I, I get one a month that somebody says, hey, he says he was CTC, do you know this guy? No, uh, or gal. And then they end up being somebody who did five years in the agency. Well, guess what? The first three years you're in training. It's two years of pipeline, one year of language. So, so if you did five years, you had one tour overseas and you probably recruited a safe housekeeper. And now you're writing a book of being a talking head on, on, on one of the major networks. And I think we should, as an agency, police that. We should be able to put a perspective, a caveat emptor on, hey, yeah, this person did serve in CIA but they only had one tour and, um, you know, the first three were for training. So uh, I, I, I think that that's part of our lack of credibility is that you get these people to get, there's a guy out there that says that he is the real um, Jack Ryan. And he says, well, I'm the closest thing to, to Jack Ryan. Well, he did about six years in the outfit, um, you know, so um you know, and Jack Ryan was an analyst and he says he was an operator. So anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, well, the only comment I'll add to that is um, agree that there's obviously, you know, there's assets right now that the CIA is working that you can't reveal because obvious, obvious reasons. And I, and I do think that bureaucracy creates this sense of, um, you know, we know better than you. And, and sometimes obviously there, there's those cases, but they do things to your point originally, which was we want to work on the perceived image. It's like, well, there, there's a lot of little things that you could do um, that are pretty insignificant that would start to repair some of that image. Um, and, you know, and so I, I, yeah, so I think you're right there. Okay. Final question for you, obviously the book, um, um, we're going to plug Amazon, anywhere else you want to send it. Do you have anywhere else you want to send people to? Um, what, what yeah, the, uh, my, my website is uh, www.rickprado.com. And that will take you, it tells you about the book. And then it'll take you to all the vendors. There's five or six, you know, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Warwick's. They're all there. They're, they're, they, they, you can actually click and see the, who's got the best price or whatever you want looking for. Awesome. Great. Okay, Rick, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this and uh, best of luck on the book. We'd love to get you back on to talk more, more stories one day. It would be my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Okay. What did you think of my conversation with Rick Prado? All that we covered a lot there. Let me know where the newsletter, ryanracingyourcom slash newsletter, sign up, interact, be a part of the show. Until next time, hope you have a wonderful day.